Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Muir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode three of the Melissa Rx Scripts podcast, and thanks for listening. Now, let's talk about a leader in our current times living like Zeta Cooper. Today, I'll be talking with my longtime friend and esteemed colleague, Susan C. Winkler. Susan and I are gonna be discussing many things, including her experience as a recognized expert in the evolving value-driven healthcare economy and how she balances working full-time and caring for aging parents and young children. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Susan and then let her also tell you about herself, her career, and her many varied experiences in life in general. Susan Winkler serves as president of Levitt Partners Solutions and chief risk management officer for the Levitt Partners family of businesses. Winkler is a pharmacist and also an attorney with extensive experience in regulatory issues related to both pharmaceutical and foods industries. She's a former chief of staff for the US Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and former president and CEO of the Food and Drug Law Institute. And Susan will tell us a little bit more about that. And I'm very excited to share with all of you that Susan was voted chair of the USP Board of Directors. USP, focused on developing quality standards, advocacy, and education, is celebrating its 200th anniversary in 2020. USP was founded in 1820, 55 years before Zeta Cooper was born in 1875. Now, as a postscript, this podcast interview is dedicated to the memory of Shirley Winkler and John Giglio Sr., who both passed away following our interview recording. Susan, Thank you for being here with me today. Before we get into your career experiences, maybe you can talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, about your family, and what it's like being from a multi-generation pharmacy family and your experience at the University of Iowa. Well, Melissa, it's great to be here with you today and I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, and I'm always happy to talk about my Iowa roots and who doesn't like to talk about their family. So I am from Sioux City, Iowa, which is the northwest corner of Iowa, right next to South Dakota and Nebraska. And I still get back there. I have family there and enjoy the opportunity to return to the great state uh, whenever possible. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm from a multi-generational pharmacy family. So my parents are both pharmacists. And although they um, each started their careers in independent pharmacy. They then veered into a distinctly non-traditional, uh, even non-traditional today, but it was certainly non-traditional in uh, the 1970s when they, they moved from community pharmacy to this practice, but they um, became a small cosmetic manufacturing facility. And so I grew up learning how to make ointment a couple of hundred pounds at a time, uh, putting it in bottles and then boxing it up and, and shipping it out. So my, my pharmacy experience was 
quite different from anyone else in my class at the University of Iowa, but was a, a great grounding. And I was introduced the, to the profession through them as a teenager in going to University of Iowa events and continuing education events in the state. And so I feel like I've been a pharmacist probably for even longer than before I started pharmacy school. That is so great. And I remember when we first met in Washington, D.C., and I learned more about your, your parents' background and aquaphilic. And I have to tell you, during these cold winter months, that was really helpful, you bringing that and introducing all of us to the wonderful cosmetic creams and lotions and preparations from your parents. Well, they, my dad would be happy to hear that at, at 86. He is still working in the lab just about every day. So um, you've just brightened his day. And I'm, I'm glad that that was helpful. I do have to admit, though, that I think my parents were expecting me to return to Northwest Iowa when I finished pharmacy school. Um, and I have not yet gotten back there from a place of work perspective. Um, and I'm not sure that now that I ever will. You know, I think you touched on something that's really interesting and important for our listeners. So tell me a little bit more about your journey and how you got to where you are today and who, who were some of your influencers, both pre and post pharmacy school? Oh, thanks, Melissa. That's a, a great question and one I, I often reflect on and, and I think I have to categorize it that I've been, or describe it rather, that I've been in the right place at the right time. So when I was in pharmacy school, I had the opportunity to work in an independent community pharmacy. Actually, I began work as a chain pharmacy and then became an independent community pharmacy uh, while I was in in Iowa City. And for your listeners who are affiliated with the University of Iowa, they may be familiar with the names of Bernie Kramers and Randy McDonough. But Bernie and Randy really taught me how to be a community pharmacist. And I was convinced when I finished pharmacy school that I would end up in a community pharmacy. Uh, you know my career, Melissa, and you're thinking, actually, you didn't ever get there. And that's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So I, I finished pharmacy school, and as I looked at my opportunities, I had a conversation with, with Tom Temple, who was then the executive director of the Iowa Pharmacy Association, and he reminded me that IPA had a, an internship for the summer, which was typically for current student pharmacists and not graduates of pharmacy school, but I asked if I could apply. I ended up in applying and, and getting that internship. So while my classmates were headed off to, I guess what I'd say were real jobs, I chose to continue my education right away and, and went to the pharmacy association. When I was at the association, it happened to be when the state legislature in Iowa passed a new, a new program for Medicaid to set up a drug prior authorization system, which then the state needed help setting up that drug prior authorization system. And I was at the association, we connected the dots and the state decided that I could be a good person to lead the implementation of that drug prior authorization program. So distinctly the right place at the right time. Then as I was about a year into that role, I was at an APHA meeting I think then my second or third APHA meeting and learned about the executive residency in association management. Uh, I applied for that and that 
then ended up me moving from Des Moines, Iowa to Washington, D.C., a year out of pharmacy school to, again, go back into the education route. That's a quite a competitive program, and so I'd see it again as a, a right place, right time. Before you think this is going to be a really long story, I stayed at APHA for quite a long time and learned just an extraordinary amount. The first year, of course, being a residency was very oriented around the education and the immersion into what it meant to be in association management and particularly for our profession. But then I'd have to say the other 12, 13 years were also a learning opportunity with great mentors, whether it was John Gans or Ron Williams or Joan Zara or Lucinda Main, who you talked to on your first podcast. So I think those are all indicative of right place, uh, right time. And, and that's how I ended up at the Food and Drug Administration and then had the opportunity to lead the Food and Drug Law Institute. That just being in the right place, being really interested in the work and seeing it as a learning opportunity probably led to that combination of right place, right time. Yeah, Susan, I think that's really interesting that you touched on not only were you positioned in the right place at the right time, but then you figured out um, kind of what the scaffolding or the steps were to take advantage of that. And oftentimes it seems in your career that these were either things that were just starting, whether it be like back in Medicaid or they were early on. And I think that's helpful for our listeners, especially for the student pharmacist to realize that sometimes you have to go where someone hasn't been and blaze a trail and start something. And you definitely have examples and themes of that throughout your career. So that, that was very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. You know, a few years ago, I really appreciated that in 2016, I reached out to you. I placed a call, I think, to say, hey, we're going to do this inaugural Zeta Cooper Leadership Symposium at University of Iowa. Would you come back and serve as a keynote speaker? And thank you. You, you said yes, that you were in for that. So talk to me a little bit about Zeta Cooper, her influence and impact on your career. Always happy to talk about Zeta Cooper and the tie to the university. And of course, that uh, opportunity to be at the conference. It was really just a, a fabulous event and I know has continued to be so as a place to learn and to, to celebrate. Um, you know, I think of, of Zeta Cooper as the more academically and professionally bound Shirley Winkler. So let me explain. Shirley Winkler is my mom who was one of a very few women in the pharmacy school class in the early 1950s. And what she did, you know, was in, in just a few women was in that class and then, uh, you know, became a, a successful professional at a time when that wasn't common. I think about Zeta Cooper being just so much more important, having done that earlier in her career and blazing trails, to use a phrase that's often used but might most be appropriate here, for other women in our profession to see that they could indeed have a successful career and part of that marker of success being 
that they created opportunities for others. I, I guess I look at the Zeta Cooper legacy through a bit of how much of a difference did she make for all student pharmacists and particularly women student pharmacists and that that's something we should all aspire to in giving back to the profession. Yeah, for sure. I was really struck when you talked about Zeta's impact and influence related to opportunities for others. And I think as we sit here in 2019, that's so important and relevant even today, that um, having people around the table, trying new things is, is just really cool. So thank you for sharing that. And I also really appreciated hearing more about your mom. I always enjoy hearing about what it was like when she was in pharmacy school and um, navigating through that. So I talked a little bit in our introduction about your extensive experience in regulatory issues and both in the pharmaceutical space and also in food industries. And I remember when you went over to the FDA to be chief of staff and you know now you're chair of the USP board of directors, you have had some amazing experiences in kind of both of those realms. And some of those involved travel and then food safety and quality standards were kind of common threads. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Happy to. I could probably talk about my experience at the FDA for as long as you would like to record. <laughs> um, but then we'd want to keep our listeners engaged. Yes. <laughs> but my, the opportunities I had at the Food and Drug Administration were just extraordinary, and I'm so appreciative for that experience. But at FDA, I, as you mentioned, I was involved in far more than just a, a drug portfolio in, in working in the office of the commissioner and as the chief of staff for the agency, I was involved in issues across its breadth, which is, is quite broad from food products to devices to drugs to cosmetics to animal drugs and animal food and, and any number. It's basically nearly 25% of the U.S. economy that's regulated by the FDA. But in the role of the, the chief of staff, you don't deal really with day-to-day -day issues. You deal with the crises that emerge. You know, if you were to ask me how FDA typically does something, I don't know. I do know how the agency puts out fires, <laughs> whether yeah. it's contaminated heparin or melamine, which is a contaminant in pet food, or, you know, an outbreak of foodborne illness from peanut butter that, well, peanut containing products to be more accurate, uh, that started emerging on Valentine's Day a couple, when I was there. It's, we used to joke actually that the food safety and drug safety and device safety crises would uh, happen either on Friday afternoon or a holiday. And oh, so yeah. just plan for them. <laughs> but that was an, an opportunity to both deal with the discrete issue and say, what is it that needs to be done, whether it was tracing the source of an outbreak of foodborne illness or, you know, evaluating where mistakes might have been made in a product review or, or something else, but then also saying, what could we have done to prevent that problem from occurring? So a risk management perspective and how do we learn from that and do things better? So I spent a lot of my time there doing that. I did, you, you mentioned travel, and I'll say I did 
find myself in a situation that I would never have imagined, and that's that I led the drug and device negotiating team from the U.S. FDA to negotiate with the Chinese equivalent of the U.S. FDA. And it was a bit surreal to be sitting in Beijing and then in Washington, D.C. in a series of negotiations between the U.S. regulators and the Chinese regulators saying, what are the standards and the agreements that we need to put in place so that we can better protect the citizens of the United States who are using the drug and device products that are coming from China. And that was, for me, an an introduction into official international diplomacy, as well as a recognition of the collaboration that we can have around the world to improve the food and drug supply, not only for people in the U.S., but globally which then ties you know, somewhat to USP's role in setting standards for drugs and for food identity so that we know that what is on the label is what is in the bottle and the, the real value of things like those standards. So I'm thrilled. You know, I left government service now nearly... Actually, it is 10 years ago, so I'm pleased to be with USP that I continue to do some work related to it and to continue to help improve public health. Well, and I think you touched on a couple of themes, the crisis part of it, where you you sort of don't know when something's going to come up, and a Friday afternoon or a holiday is when these things often happen, as you said, and then I very much appreciated you know, the risk management perspective about prevention moving forward or what can we learn from it. And I think for many of our listeners, you know, in their life's journey, whatever that is, you know, in their daily life or in their um, professional realm, thinking through that way that sometimes when you're in something that's really difficult, um, what can I learn from it can be really, really helpful. So thank you for sharing that. And those just sound like really exciting, extraordinary times. So that was a very um, interesting perspective to share with our listeners. So in the intro, we talked a a little bit about your background and that your parents are living in Iowa. And I know in the last couple of years, you and I have connected about the challenges of living far away from your parents and you're a mom to two busy, dynamic kids that have a lot of things going on. So talk to me what that's like kind of balancing um, your family and then you have your parents and they're living far away and they might have some health challenges. And how, how are you doing that? So I have to describe the the work-life balance. I don't know that it's ever a balance, but it's an ebb and a flow. <laughs> and so there are times when you ebb professionally and and perhaps can flow a bit personally yep. and, and put more effort towards that professional side. And then sometimes when it's the other way around, it's not an accident that I had one child before I went to FDA and I had the other child after I left FDA. Uh, (laughs) Because that was how the, the ebb and flow worked. But what's interesting as we mature that I don't think we think about until you're in that situation is that if we're fortunate to have our parents live long, their role and their dynamic with us as their children will will change. And so it's one of those ebb and flow, you know, when I we 
I mentioned my kids, you can plan that a bit more. You have even less ability to plan uh, when it's your parents and when they will need their adult children to play a stronger role, whether in caregiving or decision-making or simply being available emotionally and, and physically to them. It's a different stage of life that doesn't get talked about a lot and one that I think we should celebrate. We're fortunate that we have the opportunity to spend time with our parents uh, later in their life, but it's also one, I haven't yet found a good guidebook, so if you find one, let me know <laughs> in how to navigate that relationship. I think the key is, one of the keys is if you have the opportunity to have a good partner, that's extraordinarily helpful. It makes it easier. I mean, at this, at this exact moment in time, my mother is in hospice care and my father-in-law is in hospice care. And my husband and I manage that by, we know when he can go to see his dad and when I can go to see my mom and we can trade off with duties. That's, that's an extraordinary opportunity, opportunity or benefit that not everyone has, but it's, it's great when you do. And I think if it's not a spouse, obviously the support mechanisms that each of us builds are so very helpful professionally and personally. And maybe if there's something that I would reflect on and say, what's been most important that you fell into, it's the development of those support networks that you, when you need them, it's fabulous that they're there and reminding us we should continue to do that to be support networks for other people and then to use the support networks that you have available. Boy, thank you, Susan. You know, I really appreciate that you shared that. And I, I think the ebb and flow was a really important point related to, you know, professional and family and what comes up. And then just talking about how positive it is and that people are grateful to have family and parents that are still in their lives, but that there are challenges um, with it. And I think you and I have talked, my parents are just beginning the um, journey talking about downsizing and doing a big move. So I can definitely appreciate what that's like. And, you know, my siblings, we've all figured out a schedule related to clearing stuff out in the house. But like you said, the support mechanisms are so, so important. You know, they can come in different ways and that sometimes you need them more than you need others. It was interesting when you talked about work-life balance or integration, I think is, you know, kind of what people are saying more what are the things that you do, the practices? I think it's helpful for our listeners to have examples of, you know, whether I know back in the day um, you did different fitness classes and, you know, you played in musical instruments have been important to you. But so what's kind of going on in your life right now related to taking care of yourself or what do you try to make sure that you schedule and make time for? So exercise is definitely something that just clears my head. I'll admit that my gym memberships lapsed with the arrival of children, but I can also see, now that my kids are, are nine and 13, I can see the other side of, of having kids at home. And I'm gonna guess I'll rejoin a gym if we still have gyms at that time uh, with the pace of change. 
But what's important to me is just that sense of setting things aside and the physical exertion and and just feeling better, whether that's a walk or, you know, an an exercise routine that I can do at home or or going for a run in a new city and learning a bit about the layout of the city and, and what the neighborhoods look like. There's nothing quite like a walk or a run to introduce you to the, the your actual surroundings versus what you can see from a hotel room. Uh, then the other thing right now that I'm really thankful for are audiobooks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. The ability to listen, whether it's, uh, I try to mix up a fiction and a fun one with one that's a bit more professionally challenging or, or related to professional or personal development. But that makes commuting in Washington, D.C. a lot more tolerable to have an audiobook on in the background. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think you really touched on something. It's kind of like do what you can or do what works, you know, when you mentioned about the walk or run in a new city or traveling and to not beat yourself up over what doesn't work, you know, that you're not able, right. that, you're not, that you're not going to a studio class or that you're not whatever it is. I think sometimes it's hard to, or, you know, you hear people are doing other things that just getting in and whether that's reading or listening to a podcast or you know, doing a a phone call with someone. So I really appreciate the suggestions that you've given to our listeners. I think they're things that people could pick up and use in their own life. You know, one of the things that you and I have talked about um, quite frequently over the years at different times would be um, you've served on uh, various boards of directors and you've attended a lot of conferences. You've given presentations globally and across the United States. And I think you and I and Zeta Cooper and your mother have all experienced in our life and our careers, sometimes being the only woman at a conference, maybe one of two. Or the other thing that's kind of a new dynamic that's happening is then sometimes there will be meetings where there's all one gender. So can you talk to me a little bit about what that experience has been like? Yes. And and it's really interesting. So when I was in pharmacy school and then early in my career, there simply were a lot of women. I happen to be in environments where there was gender balance and more recently have been probably in the last 10 years in in situations and in part because of where I am in my career in more situations where the gender balance has been off. And a couple of things I've observed, first and foremost, a good gender balance and frankly, a good balance of many other characteristics, whether it's socioeconomic status or background and and race and many other things, just that a good blend and having that diverse thought and life experience leads to much better decisions and a path forward. So in in my management roles and in my board roles, I've come to, to recognize just how important it is to have people who think differently and approach things differently and process things differently, you you end up with a better result. And then acknowledge there are times where the gender balances off. I have a a few colleagues with whom I refer, we refer to it as the, the only skirt in the room phenomenon. And not that women have to wear skirts, that's just how we describe it. And one of the challenges that comes with that is sometimes there may be an opportunity that you're presented with and you think, well, that's just because I'm the only woman who's here. And 
what I would challenge folks to do is that that may in fact be the case, but then you should run with it and run with that opportunity and make the most of it and then try to improve the diversity so that there is a better gender balance. And I, I, I truly mean it from a gender balance perspective. I happen to, the business that I am now leading happens to have a predominance now of women leadership. So I'm actively recruiting to say, how do we get back to a more gender balanced dynamic? Then when I go into some of the, the boards that I sit on, USP is not an example of this, but a couple of other boards that I sit on where I am the only skirt in the room, try to make sure that we achieve gender balance in those environments as well. And to think through and carefully navigating what just our differences and then saying, how do we, okay, how do we come out of this with a strength and approach things constructively so that you don't get caught in a negative cycle and thinking that it's because your gender happens to be different from the others that you disagree with them or agree with them, but uh, kind of working through where that might matter, where it doesn't, and then saying, where can, how can we do the best for the organization that we're all there to serve? Yeah, I think those points you shared are so important. And I also think serving as a mentor or providing encouragement for emerging leaders or people that are coming up in a field, whether it be healthcare, pharmacy, or other industries, seeing examples who look like them, sound like them, and yes. in our country and our world is so important. So I know you and I both have a commitment that when we're asked to show up at something, you know, we do that and we talk about it because, you know, I remember when I was in pharmacy school and you, you, you dream about things and you want to see the bigger picture, but if you can't kind of make that linkage, well, well, how do I get there? What could that be like? So, you know, I, I think what you shared is really important. And, you know, there's research that supports the importance of diversity and, you know, diversity of thought and background and experience, all those pieces, and that that leads to innovation and, you know, stronger yes. leadership, and then also greater sense of community. And those are all things that are so big and important in our world. And so, you know, sometimes if people could be like, well, why do we need people who think differently? But then when you frame it in the, well, we can come up with different ideas, we can come up with new products, we can come up with new solutions where, you know, we're thinking in a, in a different way that that can really make a difference. So I appreciate your insight. It's a topic that for sure is getting more attention and especially more about leadership and more women leaders in the last few years. But I think it's something we need to continue to talk about and also try to impact change in some of the ways that you described, I think were really helpful related to the board table or succession planning or encouraging emerging leaders. So thank you, you know, for those inputs. So we're winding down now. And, you know, as we transition um, with that, I just wanted to ask you, you know, while I have you on, on the line during the podcast, is there anything else you'd like to share with, with others or comment you know, in the spirit of Zeta Cooper, or really any final advice that you'd like to share? Yes. And I think Zeta Cooper, she probably didn't say it this directly, but I'm, I'm going to presume it's consistent with how she would have approached it. And my thought here is often when I've talked to either graduating student pharmacists or pharmacists or, or anyone who's considering a new opportunity and they're thinking, well, do I, do I want to make that change? And thinking, 
you know, there's always risks with it. And is it, is it more comfortable where you are? What I want to convey is that we have many opportunities and you should take advantage of many of them. And if it doesn't work out, you likely learned a lot that will then be helpful somewhere else. And so it's okay if you, you know, are deciding between three positions and you choose one and find out after six months that it's not a great fit. That's not a wasted six months. I would challenge folks to, to consider that that was an investment in learning what, what it is that you're not as well suited to, but look at you know what is it that didn't quite work and then how do you craft and find that role that is a better fit? So I, I guess it would be to say, assess the risks and then test things out, try new things because you can always pivot, but it's rare that a, particularly professionally, it's rare that a professional decision locks you in for the next 20 years, particularly in this career and business environment, we have different opportunities and, and it's an important decision and one you should take seriously, but don't presume that a decision that you make in 2019 is dispositive and closes doors for you in 2029. In fact, it may open many doors between now and then. Susan, I think that is such powerful advice, and I so appreciate that you're sharing that at, at the close, because I think right now, with so much social media, that sometimes people think, I've got to get it right, it has to be perfect, and you know, without reflecting that what you're seeing on Instagram or Facebook or wherever is a curated view, <laughs> you know, right. the steps that people took to get there or the things that didn't work out, you don't often see that, and so... I think your message about for our listeners about taking risks and what can you learn from it and it's okay and you know this decision you can pivot. So thank you and I, I definitely think that is very Zeta Cooper like related to the things that she tried in her career and the new trails that she went down and you know the the things that she started. Well, I just want to take a minute to just say thank you, you know, for your time Today, you and I have been friends a really long time. We met early in our careers when um, you did the executive residency and I had been the resident just a couple years before you and had some many long and windy, fun adventures over the years, living the life in, in DC and kind of supporting and caring for each other through weddings and babies and exciting times and moves and job changes and all that. So I just sincerely and humbly wanna say, Thank you and how proud I am of you on your journey. And then I look forward to connecting with you during our next trip to DC. And thank you, Melissa. Uh, it's been great to be on with you and so appreciated the opportunity. This is the Melissa RX Scripts podcast. And to everyone listening, please subscribe to our show and follow me, Melissa Muir Corrigan, on social media. Thanks so much for listening.